You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday. February 11, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jim Bianco. Uh, but first, let's do a quick look at U.S. equity markets because it's another ugly day. Uh, looks like the big loser on the day, major U.S. equities uh, indices, is NASDAQ Composite Index, still bouncing around a little bit, but looks like off almost 2.8%, uh, closing out the day here at 13,791. S&P 500 also off nearly 2%, lost the 45 handle, 4,418 uh, right now. Dow Jones Industrial Average off, down on the day, about 500 points, just shy of 1.5%, closing out the day for 34,737. Not a pleasant, auspicious end to the week. Jim Bianco, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're looking at. Yeah, this was not a good uh, uh, end of the week at all. I, I think the thing you have to continue to look at is the bond market and looking at the fear of inflation and what the Fed is going to do. Remember, this market has been driven by liquidity for the last couple of years. That liquidity is going away. And now we're talking about speeding up it going away, whether we're going to get 50 basis points in March, uh, how much of a quantitative tightening we're going to get in the second half of the year. And I think that that is really the tail of the tape. That yeah. and the Ukraine and the story with the Ukraine. The problem I have with that story is everybody I talk to says there's nothing to see here. Okay, good. So if we don't invade the Ukraine, prices won't move an inch. If there's anything that challenges that narrative, prices go down. So it's an asymmetric story for the market. And I never like it when we have asymmetric stories like that. Yeah, interesting. The the news out today uh, that Washington U.S. government administration officials advising uh, that the invasion may be imminent. That is the that is the word uh, coming out. The decision may have been made. I think was the was the wording that I read today uh, earlier in the New York Times. Uh, Jim, let's rewind it back to yesterday. Tell us about what your take was on that CPI print, seven point five percent headline number year over year. What was your analysis of that? What was your thinking? Uh, and how are you bringing it into your thesis? It wasn't a good number. It was showing that inflation is still staying fairly strong. To give you one metric to think about, 7.5% is what the inflation rate was over the last year. Over the last three months annualized, it was 8%. So it's not slowing down. I know that everybody keeps talking about it slowing down, and it probably will at some point. But as of yesterday's number, it was not. And I think that that was the biggest shock, was everything was up. And it is continuing to be a real problem uh, as we move forward. And you saw it with the unbelievable reaction in the, in the bond market, and especially at the short end of the yield curve. The two-year note yield was up 25 basis points, its biggest move up in 12 and a half years. You even had Things that normally we don't even talk about, like the three-month bill moving up 10 basis points yesterday, and the idea that there might be an intermediate move. Now, they threw some cold water on it, but all of that you should take as the reaction to a 
CPI number that just was not very good at all. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I think we have a chart for U.S. Uh, Treasuries 2's 10 spread. This is 10's minus 2's. Uh, if we can pull that chart up, you can see obviously seeing some compression there on that spread. Uh, tell us a little bit about that chart, Jim, uh, because I think it represents precisely the point that you're making, this notion uh, that the Fed is behind the curve. Uh, give us a sense of what that chart means. Yeah, it's not only is the Fed behind the curve, I think they're so far behind the curve they can't see it anymore. The, the yield curve has a reputation for being an excellent indicator of the economic activity in the United States. It is eight for eight in predicting recessions. And Ash, a bit of a plug, last October for Real Vision, I interviewed Cameron Harvey, a Duke University professor, who was the guy in the 1980s in his dissertation at the University of Chicago that came up with the idea that the yield curve is a leading indicator of the economy. And if you're interested in it, that interview, he went through it from soup to nuts, uh, we did in the second half of, of the interview. Oh, as the yield curve as the yield curve inverts or as the yield curve flattens, it is a sign that there's more and more stress being built up. In other words, let me restate, let me restate that. The the Federal Reserve has a problem. They start raising rates because something forces them like inflation now. They don't know when to stop. So they keep raising rates until something breaks. That's unfortunately their history. The last time they rose rates in 2018 and 19, the repo, the repo market broke in September of 2019. Yeah. As the yield curve flattens and goes inverted, it is a market signal they're about to break something. And we haven't even started, we haven't even started um, rate hikes yet. We're a month away from it. And the yield curve has gone from 90 basis points at the beginning of the year to 45 basis points right now. And it's starting to get to the point where you could envision in reasonable scenarios that in the next, say, three to six months, it could very well be inverted. And for us, the takeaway with an inverted yield curve, short rates higher than long rates, is that the stresses have built up so much that there's an expectation that something is either broken in the economy, the markets, the plumbing of the financial system, or will be broken. Now, let me be clear. That's when the yield curve inverts. It's not inverted now. It's still positive 45 basis points, but it's rapidly moving in that direction. And it's and it's lending, I think, to further unease in financial markets. I think it just dropped to 43 bips while you were talking, Jim. Oh, man, it might it might before the end of this interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, give us a little bit of context here, because I think it's important sometimes to sort of zoom the camera back and talk about the, the big picture. The challenge, it seems, uh, is that the Fed has challenges on both sides of the dual mandate. Uh, you keep hearing this this talk the last uh, 48 hours, seven rate hikes, 175 basis points, uh, move uh, in the next, uh, in 2022. Uh, you heard, obviously, uh, this, the uh, the call for um, from uh, from uh, Chairman, uh, uh, President Bullard uh, to accelerate the pace and do like 100 basis points. Give us an idea. Obviously, this is being done uh, to increase the cost of money, to slow down uh, this almost inexorable rise uh, in prices, in inflation. Jim, give us the opposite side of that take. Tell us a little bit about the risks that the Fed has uh, of tightening too quickly, potentially tightening into recession, and what could happen uh, to the rate of growth of the U.S. economy and to speak specifically to the other side uh, of that uh, dual mandate, the jobs market, the labor market here in the United States. Yeah, so let's put this in perspective here. 
that um, when your interest rates go up, it is neither bullish or bearish for financial markets. It depends on why. If interest rates are rising because real growth is expanding, which was the case for most of the last 40 years, every interest rate rise was because real growth was getting very strong. That's good. You know, equity markets will advance in a rising rate environment and the economy will advance. If they're rising because of inflation, that's not good. Go back and look in the 70s and the late 60s. Uh, every, every interest rate rise was met poorly by financial markets and the economy as well, too. So what's different now is that we've got it rising because of a fear of inflation, something we haven't seen in 40 years. And that now gets the Fed to a difficult priority. We, meaning the collective of us, all worry about growth. We worry about growth uh, and we, we express that in a lot of different ways. Maybe we express it as the Fed put, uh, how much will the stock market go down because of a reverse wealth effect? Uh, we worry about whether or not higher interest rates will impact real GDP growth, will impact employment as well. And that is what has dominated the conversation, let's say, since 2008, when the Fed started doing quantitative easing. It was always about growth. Yep. But now it might be the priority is inflation. And people are having a difficult time getting their head around the idea that growth is no longer the priority. You'll hear that by them saying, you know, the, 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 the anger that they had over Bullard yesterday talking about 50, because he said it, the stock market fell. I didn't know it was Jim Bullard's job to make your P&L easy, but that seems to be what the complaint was. Hmm. He was right to talk about 50 if the priority of the um, if the priority of the Fed is inflation. Now, let me pivot here, Ash, for a second. I think we have a chart of uh, consumer confidence, and it's up yeah. there um, right now. This chart is actually missing today's number because today's right. number is 61. So it would be off the bottom of the page and, and that we would be sitting at an, a 10-year low in consumer confidence. And if you dive into this report, Richard Curtin, who's the chief economist and the inventor of this report, wrote a note, and he had an incredible statistic. 50, 50 percent of the people surveyed in February said that they expect their standard of living to go down because of inflation. 50 percent of the American public, according to this subject, uh, survey, thinks that they're going to be worse off in one year because of inflation. What's the Fed going to do about that? Well, if you listen to the equity guys, well, what they have to do is push the stock market to a new high. That's not going to help these people. 40% of the American public has less than $1,000 of savings in rents. These people don't need the stock market at a new high. Well, we need the economy to stay strong because we want the job market to stay strong. We got four and a half million more jobs than we have people unemployed right now. The job market has never been better. So the, really the question is, what's the Fed going to do for those 50% that think that they're, that they're worse off, going to be worse off? I think the answer is going to be they're going to get really aggressive and they're going to raise rates a lot and maybe start with 50 in March and go those full seven rate hikes. And for those that whine and complain that every time the bullet comes out and says, something and and you fall 80 handles in the S&P, get used to it. You're not the priority anymore. 
Inflation is the priority. You used to be the priority. Or as I like to joke, because my name ends in Aval, that the market used to think it was the firstborn of an Italian mother, the Fed being the Italian mother. It's the center of their universe. Well, now inflation is. You're the second born. So get used to it. The Fed is going to look at the inflation story first, second and third. And they're going to say, we have to do something about this. We've got strong growth. Look, the New York Fed nowcast report has got potentially 6% growth for the first quarter. If the Fed believes that, they can move 50. They can move 75 if we're going to have 6% growth and 7.5% inflation. And the markets aren't ready for that. The markets think, well, the Fed's never going to do anything to make my life miserable because that's always been the way it's been. New reality now is inflation has been a big game changer. And I still think a lot of people are having a hard time getting their head around it. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, as the firstborn of an Italian mother myself, I'm sure she's watching and chuckling. Uh, but to precisely this point, you know, Bullard, it had two parts. It was 50 in uh, next month, but also talking about 100 bips, uh, a full percentage point before July 1st. Big move, again, to your point. This, this is the conversation. Uh, I think you've just hit on the real core of what we're seeing here. This starts to feel like a real regime shift from the Fed in terms of the priorities. Uh, firstborn, secondborn, I'm not sure. But the reality is, you're absolutely right. It seems as though there's been a real moment of reckoning uh, with, you know, look, they can see these charts as well. They know what the perception is about being behind the curve. This really does seem like this uh, real durable realignment. But the question is, you know, it's easy to have this conversation now. Uh, but what happens when this tightening cycle begins, if the U.S. economy does begin to slip into recession? You know, for all of the sort of strum and drong, when you look at the numbers uh, for where we are uh, year to date and trailing 12 months, uh, U.S. equity markets are not significantly impaired. What happens when we start to experience contraction? Is it possible? And this is an argument uh, that's been made here uh, on, on Real Vision. Uh, by uh, Julian Brigden and others. Is it possible that the global economy, the U.S. economy, has become so intensely financialized that there just is not the will uh, and not the capacity to back off on inflation because we see this, this environment where the employment markets, labor markets, are so tied to U.S. equities? I don't know, but that's a question that's worth asking. So two thoughts about that. Um, uh, on the first thought, let me give you a, a, a technical answer for that. There's this animal that we look at in the bond market called the terminal funds rate. Where's the Fed going to stop raising rates? And right now, that number is, according to market measures, in the low 2%. So we're going to get the funds rate. That's a total of eight rate hikes. And then we're pretty much done. Well, market's expecting seven of those to come potentially this year or into February of 23. And so what does it mean that we have that low terminal funds rate? Well, the happy face argument is, see, the Fed's only going to raise rates a few times, and then inflation's going to go away, and then they could stop doing it. Or I would probably take the other side of the equation and say, this financialized, levered $30 trillion in debt 
economy cannot handle higher interest rates. So going back to our yield curve right. chart, if you push the funds rate near 2%, you'll probably have the yield curve inverted. You'll probably will have broken something and it will probably become evident by 2023 what is broken. And yes, all it will take is a 2% funds rate to do that. Not a 5% or 8% funds rate, but a 2% funds rate because of the financialization right. uh, of the economy. The other thing to keep in mind is to take Julian's argument as well. What if the Fed says, look, we just can't do this. We just cannot you know, hit the economy to rein in inflation. Uh, as much as we'd like to, it would cause too much net damage. Well, here's the problem with that. Who's getting crushed because of inflation? The 50%. And where's that showing up? In the president's approval rating, in Congress's approval rating, the Democrats are looking like they're going to get totally wiped out in November. Now, it's February. There's plenty of things can happen to change that. But as of right now, it looks like they're going to get wiped out. So if the Fed backs off and says, we can't do that, go look at what they're talking about in Mother Jones or Axios or some of the left-wing papers. They're saying, literally, the Fed, the Fed can't uh, do anything about inflation, so we need to slap on price controls. We need to put on wage controls. We need to heavily, heavily regulate the economy to bring in inflation. I think the Fed knows this, and I think that this is another motivation. Look, don't you go down the wage and price controls of the early 70s, which were an abject failure. Yeah. Let us handle the inflation issue. And if the Fed wants to say, no, we can't do it because the stock market might have a bad year, that could that could bring in wage controls, price controls, which could be far, far worse. So what I'm getting at is stock market guys, I get it, but maybe it's your turn. And, you know, because the and the reason I say that is not out of malice or anything. It's right. the the situation has changed because we've got a 40-year high in inflation, and a lot of people do not get their heads around the regime shift that that brings with it. Yeah. Jim, here are the numbers I was referencing earlier, just to just to make the point, just to make the argument. So uh, S&P 500, uh, year-to-date, it's off about 7.3%. Uh, Trailing 12-month, uh, up 12.7%. Dow Jones Industrial Average, off 3.7%. Uh, it looks like year-to-date. Uh, I'm sorry, off... 4.4% year to date, uh, trailing 12 month up 10 spot 58%. So it's really easy to talk about experiencing a little bit of pain when you're up double digits uh, on a trailing 12 month basis. Uh, but when this market, if, if this market uh, gets into co serious correction territory or a significant bear market, I just wonder what that does to the political calculus. Now, I, I'm, I'm arguing this to a certain extent uh, because it's the counter case that I'm hearing everywhere else, uh, which is this notion that uh, the first, second, and third priority of the Federal Reserve is going to be controlling inflation. I'm just sort of asking the question, what happens if that pain uh, does begin to result in a significant impairment of U.S. labor markets? Uh, and what happens if they really are in this bind where they're trying to walk between the Scylla and Charybdis uh, and it just the path gets narrower and tighter and more painful as they walk down it. That's exactly right. See, the, the thing about this is, is that we have to start with the idea that there's no policy that makes everybody happy. Right. So all the Fed has is trade-offs and priorities. And so they're going to have to have some kind of a trade-off. Look, if the trade-off is going to be what happens if 
the stock market has a 20, 25% correction. I'm not calling for it, but just for purposes, it has that kind yeah. of correction and the economy slows and employment goes up. And then you're going to turn around and you're going to tell 50% that think that they're going to be worse off. Sorry, can't help you. That is that, that, that is going to lead to just as much pain on the other side. I get it. We're all a bunch of rich stock traders and we don't see the pain that the inflation numbers cause, but there is real pain. I, I've talked about this before in this venue and on this channel. Go back and look at what happened when we had inflation in the 70s and we had to, and we had to have high interest rates to basically pull that in. We had people with guns walking through the Federal Reserve trying to take the FOMC hostage to, in order to get them to lower interest rates. December 81 is when that happened. We had farmers blockade the Fed building with their tractors. Paul Volcker couldn't go to work. We had builders mailing two-by-fours to the Fed because they couldn't use them to build buildings. You want to talk about pain? The pain of inflation might dwarf the pain of a 20 or 30% correction in the stock market. So my point here is there is no good choice for the Fed. There is no right. do this and both sides win. There's nothing but ugly trade-offs. And part of the reason that's happened, they're still buying bonds this month. They've waited so long to attack to this, this problem that now they've got nothing but bad options to pick from. That's exactly right, Jim. That's extremely well said. And that's the challenge is that the, the trade-offs that are always present just keep getting uglier and uglier uh, for the Federal Reserve. Listen, there, the world, uh, this country is filled with people uh, where inflation is not being offset by the rise in the value of their equity portfolios, right? And, and it very often seems like if you're watching financial television, uh, that's the story that you hear. But the, the important point is that for lots of Americans, for lots of workers, this is really painful. The one statistic that I saw from the CPI print that I thought was an absolute gut punch uh, was food prices up 7% on an annualized basis, on a one-month basis, up nine-tenths of 1%. I mean, it's nearly 1% rise in the cost of food prices. This begins to create real pain for Americans uh, in ways uh, that we just haven't seen before in our lifetime. If you're in your 40s or 50s, uh, you don't remember in your adult lifetime these terrible inflation prints and the impact it has on the country and on the body politic of the nation. Yeah, and you know, and if you want another gut punch number in there, if you look at capital goods stuff, that makes up around 30-ish percent of the CPI number, 70% of it is services. That was up 18% year over year. Uh, you got to go back. That's even higher than stuff went up in 1980. It, uh, you got to go back to 1974 to find another uh, another metric that was that high. You know, the durable capital goods was that high. So that's part of the supply chain problem. We know why, why that's happening, but it doesn't make the $1,000 or less savings crowd any feel any better that they have to pay 18% more for the same things they were buying a year ago. And then you throw in, as you mentioned, food prices. Then you throw in, I was looking it up today, $3.48 a gallon, a new eight-year high in gasoline prices nationwide as well, too, and a five-handle in California on gasoline prices right now. And all of this stuff, yeah, you think it's going to be ugly because the stock market might fall 20 or 30%. It's ugly now because of these prices. And that's why I think the Fed has got nothing but hard choices that they're going to have to make. Which issue are they going to try to attack? 
And if you try yeah. to tell the people that have to deal with these high prices, look, I can't help you because, man, the stock market might go down or, or wages might, you know, or employment might go up or, or the GDP number might might flail on that number. That's just going to further inflame the situation. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, just to switch gears here for a moment to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. Bitcoin uh, also off uh, on a trailing 12 month basis, about 8%. Uh, right now. And I wanted to take a look uh, at a conversation on Real Vision right now, uh, a conversation called Crypto Has a Voice on Capitol Hill. This was a conversation I did uh, with Perry Ann Boring out today on Essential, Pro, and Plus. Let's take a look. In 1971, when Nixon closed, President Nixon closed the gold window, we left the gold standard and we've been in a in this fiat experiment and that experiment has really not been going on that long it's you know 50 you know some years the world has been operating on currencies that are backed by nothing but the full faith and credit of their governments that was a huge change in the global monetary system um, so just as much as our financial and our monetary system has changed in the past hundred years, I think it's going to change just as much, if not more, in the next hundred years. Um, and I think Bitcoin, you know, very likely could be the basis of that. Um, even the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, um, has said in congressional testimonies in Congress um, that he sees Bitcoin acting like gold, and he has even compared it to a digital gold and a gold 2.0. Um, and you're seeing that in portfolios today. You're seeing a number of advisors and um, CFOs and asset allocators starting to replace gold with Bitcoin. So it starts out small where you have funds and allocators who are you know, putting just a small amount of their portfolio um, into, in, into Bitcoin. Um, but that, I think, over time is, is going to change and potentially Bitcoin could be a, a global reserve asset. The fiat experiment sounds like a terrible new wave synth pop band, but the broader point is an important and interesting one. Could Bitcoin become a global central bank reserve asset in the future, Jim? Yeah, I think it, it definitely can. I think that Perianne had the first half right that this new experiment of fiat currency that is backed by nothing, you know, whether or not it'll be around in 50 or 100 years, who knows? And we're probably looking for an alternative to it. And that alternative is not going to be another fiat. You know, we're not sitting here arguing, should the dollar be the re next reserve currency or continue to be, or should it be the one or the euro? It's going to be something different. And something like Bitcoin or crypto, you could definitely see the, the long-term case where that could assume reserves currency status and maybe even replace the dollar, you know, in a generation or so. So I agree with her. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Perian is really great on these issues, particularly about the intersection of digital assets and public policy, which is becoming increasingly uh, a more important conversation to have. Jim, uh, we've got a couple minutes left here. Can we do a quick speed round, run through some of these questions? We got some great ones queuing up. Yep, I'll give real quick answers. Great. So it comes to us, the first one from Achilles. This is from Real Vision's Exchange. This is Real Vision's internal social network. How substantial is a 50 basis point hike 
uh, to say hedge funds who run levered trades that they would have to decrease their leverage on. Is this substantial and could it create a market risk? Achilles is thinking in many of the same ways that I am. Yes, it can, because there's 9,000 hedge funds. And we are we to assume that all 9,000 of them are prepared for a 50 basis point hike, a change in their funding costs, a change in the liquidity in markets? Most of them will be, but it doesn't take many of them to be caught off sides on that kind of a move. So you have to be very concerned about something like that. That's why the Fed needs to communicate what it is they plan on doing in March, and they need to be communicated fairly soon. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Jasmine from the exchange also, uh, something that you were alluding to earlier. Uh, Jim, what's the macro impact of a Ukraine invasion, a potential Ukraine invasion, we should say, uh, plus emergency rate hike? Well, first of all, I don't think there's going to be an emergency rate hike. I think that that was talk yesterday, and they've kind of thrown cold water on it. Um, if it doesn't happen Monday morning, which I don't think it happens, then it's probably not because the, at this point, you might as well wait for March. The Ukraine, I'll say, is an asymmetric risk. And what I mean by that is that all of the managers and everybody I talk to, oh, nothing's going to happen there. OK, good. So if nothing happens, the stock market can be unchanged on that news. Anything that comes up that suggests that there might be the chance of conflict lowers the market. So all it does is all it is is a negative can't really be a positive for the market. And keep in mind that if there's any kind of a, a, a movement, there is going to be a response. And for financial markets, it's not just so much about there's troops in the Ukraine, will the US send troops or something like that? It's that we'll put sanctions on them, they'll stop sending oil. Remember, Russia is, is a bigger oil producer than the Saudi Arabia. They won't send gas to Europe. They're 40% of the natural gas supply of Europe. So this has the potential to really spiral ugly fast if there is some kind of movement there. Here's an interesting one, uh, Jim, from David from The Exchange. Has crypto assets devolved into a risk on slash risk off trading vehicle? Unfortunately, I think they have. And I think it's because of the wide institutional adoption of them. You know, let, let me put it this way. I'll, I'll speak crypto language here for you, Ash. All everybody in the traditional financial markets that buy into crypto are a bunch of degens, degenerate gamblers. They just buy Bitcoin or Ethereum and want number go up. That's why they do it. Michael Saylor is a great example of that. They're not staking. They're not putting money in liquidity pools. They're not lending or borrowing their coins yet. So what it is, is it's become kind of the end of the risk curve. The risk curve starts with treasuries and then goes to corporate bonds, high yield bonds, equities, and then it becomes crypto. So crypto is just like trading the ARK fund on leverage it is where it is. It shouldn't be that way. It won't be that way for forever, but it is now largely because of the big institutional adoption, which is all buy coins and wish for a number to go up sell coins when you don't think number is going to go up. Yeah, by the way, we should say ARK uh, looks like off 53.5% uh, trailing 12-month uh, basis. Final question, Jim. This one comes to us from MLC from the exchange, and it sort of perfectly encapsulates uh, a bit of the tone, a bit of the sentiment from the University of Michigan survey. And the question is this, are there any safe havens left? Um. I, you know, I don't know what you mean by safe haven. I mean, if, if you're looking for something 
that is going to go up in value as a safe haven. Commodities and I think inflation plays are still got big left in them right now. Um, if you're looking for somewhere to hide, gold is a place you could hide. Yeah, it's not going up, but it's at least holding your value. But if you're asking, when is the stock market going to go up? When are overvalued assets that depend on liquidity and leverage going to go up? The worst thing you can ask for in those markets is inflation and hostile central banks. And that's exactly what you have now. Now, they could maybe bounce back Monday. They'll get excited because the Bengals are going to romp the Rams. That's my prediction. Uh, and then, you know, they, they you know, but ultimately, if you've got a hostile central bank and rising inflation, it is a toxic combination for risk assets that depend on liquidity and leverage. Yeah, Jim, very well said. Obviously, a difficult day, but a great day to have you here with your cool-headed analysis. Thank you so much for joining us. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.